Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Frankly Speaking podcast by Friends of Europe. I'm your host this week, Chris Cremates-Courtney, Senior Fellow for Peace, Security, and Defense. In recent episodes, we've discussed the various ways that emerging technologies such as extended reality and artificial intelligence are impacting security, democracy, and human agency. This week, we delve into neurotechnology, so we're delighted to be joined by Nita Farahani, a leading scholar on the ethical, legal, and social implications of emerging technologies. She is a distinguished professor of law and, and philosophy at Duke University and author of the new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Nita, thank you and welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast. And I'd like to begin by asking you, let's just dive right in. What exactly is neurotechnology and, and what promise does it hold for us? So neurotechnology is a broad category of technology that is designed to be able to access and potentially change the brain, but more directly than uh, our everyday devices that we interact with. So the broad class are things like functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, very large machines that people may go into in order to have imaging of their brain activity done, and then powerful AI algorithms that are used to interpret what is seen there. It also includes things like FNIRs, functional near-infrared spectroscopy. These are devices that shine infrared light through the brain to pick up the hemodynamic changes in the brain. That is, as you think or do things, you have blood flow that uh, changes in your brain. It uses oxygen in different regions of your brain that are active, and those differences can be picked up and, again, decoded to understand what it means. EEG or electroencephalography is a big category of neurotechnology. This picks up the electrical activity in the brain. And this is one of the large areas that I focus in my book on because what is uh, what has traditionally been clinical or research-based tools, neurotechnology, are now increasingly becoming consumer-based tools as the sensors that can pick up brain activity are miniaturized and can be applied by ordinary consumers and are integrated into things like earbuds and headphones and smartwatches um, that pick up primarily right now electrical activity as neurons fire in the brain. And then again, AI algorithms are used to decode and decipher what that information means. But it also, uh, there are also portable versions of EMG electromyography and portable versions of FNIRS, the functional near infrared spectroscopy. Well, usually I'm the one who's speaking all the all the technical jargon here. So I, I have to say this is it's uh, it, it's so great to talk to you because there's so much to learn. I know I've delved into you know, some of the other earlier topics I mentioned, extended reality and artificial intelligence. And I think when I read your book and I learned more about neurotechnology, I realized there's an entire different world out there of possibilities, both positive and negative. And I, I think there's one passage from your book that really stood out to me. And you said, and I'm quoting from your book here, that we stand at a fork in the road where the coming dawn of neurotechnology could change our lives for the better or lead us to a more dystopian future where even our brains are hacked and tracked. And you've already told me, you know, I'm not sure if you really went into the positive aspects, but can you please elaborate a bit more about this crossroads we face? Sure. So I gave you just a background on what the neurotechnology is, like literally what the technology is. 
Now, the ways in which it's used in clinical and research settings is primarily to diagnose or to understand when something has gone wrong with the brain. So this could be somebody has something like a brain tumor or they have a neurodegenerative disease or they have you know, advanced stages of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease, or, you know, they have chronic migraines like I do, and you're simply trying to find out and rule out possibilities that there's something else going on in the brain. And so brain imaging can be done to understand a lot of what's happening in the brain in those settings. Moving it into consumer hands, the early applications that are already on the market enable people to visualize basic brain states like are you meditating? Is your brainwave activity consistent with being in a meditative state or being stressed out? Is your mind wandering? Or are you able to focus? And then that can be used for neurofeedback. That is by seeing the information and getting real-time feedback, you know, to understand, for example, context switching and how expensive it is for you. You look on one screen and you think, okay, I'm just going to check my email real quickly. And then I'm going to check my social media accounts. And then I'm going to come back to what I was working on. You can literally see how long it takes to regain focus or see what that does to your stress levels. It also has potential health and therapeutic benefits for people worn continuously over time, like picking up the earliest stages of epileptic seizures well before they occur, minutes to up to an hour before they occur, sending potentially life-saving alerts to a mobile device. Or, for example, uh, being able to pick up the earliest stages of glioblastoma which is a deadly and aggressive form of brain cancer and brain tumor, largely because it's almost always diagnosed too late and it moves very quickly. But tiny electrical changes in the brain potentially could be deciphered through uh, consumer neurotechnology. There are a lot of ways in which we don't know ourselves and we think or we have a sense of what our own biases are, but you could actually start to really see through neurofeedback and visualization of brain activity might also enable people to finally treat their brain health as seriously as they treat the rest of their physical well-being. While physical well-being and longevity are increasing, brain health and wellness are not. The toll of neurological disease and mental health disorders and drug use disorders are skyrocketing. So those are some of the positives and the reasons why I say we stand at a crossroads because the ability to lean into that and embrace a world in which we are able to have access to our own brain activity in the same way that we have information about our heart rate or sleep could be really promising. But once you start to access your own brain activity, particularly through devices that are sold to you by the very same corporations who've commodified personal data for years, what that means is that there's a new era of brain transparency where even our brains and directly what's happening there and being deciphered could also be commodified, could also be intruded upon, could also be sold, used for micro-targeting of advertisements, used by governments for chilling of freedom of speech or to interrogate people's brains for, you know, whether or not they've committed a crime or whether they recognize particular aspects of the crime scene. Or, for example, to punish people for having dissident thoughts against a, you know, tyrannical government or against oppressive regimes. Um, And, you know, these aren't just hypothetical risks. All of these examples that I've given to you, both on the positive side, but also on the negative side, including surveillance of workers in the workplace, you know, which are already happening in other contexts, but with the precision and access to the one space that I, I really think of as our last bastion of freedom, our last place of privacy and the most important one to human flourishing, 
suddenly become at risk as well. So we stand at this crossroads where, like other technologies that are, remain largely unregulated, the path that we go down could offer those benefits, but they could quickly be dwarfed by the dystopian misuses of it unless we make the right choices now to safeguard us so that it's the path of promise that we follow, not the path where even the dystopian possibilities become realities. Thank you. I think there's a lot to think about there. In particular, um, when we think about the crossroads that you describe, uh, and, it, and I do agree that it does match up well with another, you know, our concerns about the crossroads we face for other types of emerging technologies. But I think you know, you've been on the road a lot talking about this for years. You've been you know, uh, discussing your new book with uh, people all over the world. And I have to wonder and ask you uh, about that crossroads. How aware do you think policymakers are of this crossroads? Or, or I say policymakers and society in general, how, how aware are they of this crossroads that we're at and, and how can we get them to recognize it? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And and what I'd say is there has been a lot of important efforts that have already been underway from the UN to UNESCO to OECD to nations worldwide who've looked and engaged at questions about rights and regulations with respect to neurotechnologies far less than the United States, where there's a huge market and market potential. That's not that surprising, given how far behind the U.S. is in regulation and oversight of most companies. But nevertheless, there has been a lot of activity underway. I think one of the challenges, as you recognize, you know, coming to me from a different space where you've been focusing and understand the interrelationships between these are all technologies really designed to access and change our brains in fundamental ways, that trying to develop, you know, rights and regulations with respect to neurotechnologies or XR or, you know, metaverse, you know, kind of uniquely or immersive rights uniquely, it's kind of like playing a game of whack-a-mole where, you know, you are constantly behind and the next one will pop up. And so, I, you know, I think that people are being very thoughtful about it, but they're they're still addressing these technologies in silos instead of in a more holistic way of trying to understand that these technologies don't exist in silos. Humans don't exist in silos. They're interacting with all of these at once. And it's the interrelationship that we have to really be governing. And so the approach that I've taken in the book, which I know we'll get to on this concept of cognitive liberty, is really meant to be an umbrella concept to recognize that and to applaud the important work that's being happen that's been happening across nations and across organizations but to try to move the conversation to a more holistic one that might enable us to take an approach that really says, like, what's what's the commonality of the problem across it and how might we design solutions and rights that would enable us to address it in that way? Thank you. And I'm glad you brought up cognitive liberty, because having read your book, that was really uh, stayed in my brain. <laughs> so you, you've done a little neuro, you did a little neurotechnology with your words there in your book, and it really stuck with me that uh, the idea of cognitive liberty. And I think it, uh, and when I sort of try it on with other uh, concerns that we've, we've previously discussed here, it seems to fit. So could you briefly sort of explain a bit more to our audience what, what is cognitive liberty and sure. what, it means for, what it means for our future? Yeah. So first, thank you for trying it on in the other context, because I think that's the important work that we have to be doing now is 
figuring out how it can serve, if it can serve as an umbrella concept across these different domains. So cognitive liberty is the right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And I see that as having really kind of two big parts with subparts within it. So the two big parts are cognitive liberty is a right to access and use technologies that, you know, both inform us about what's happening in our brains and change them if we choose to do so. Uh, so it's a right to self-determination, which is really a positive right to, to the use of technologies that can improve our lives. And, you know, the information and the data from that, which includes a really important component of self-ownership uh, over ourselves, right, over our own brains and mental experiences. Importantly, it's also a right from uh, interference with our mental privacy and our freedom of thought. Mental privacy is a relative right, just like all privacy rights are. As a relative right, it would protect a much broader class of intrusions into our mental activity, and that's everything from the automatic processes and feelings and even broader thoughts that we might have. But as a relative right, that means that sometimes it will yield to societal interest. It's not that individuals and individual autonomy always trumps every societal interest that we might have. Because the interest in mental privacy that we have is so strong, it's going to be very narrowly tailored and limited in the instances in which those intrusions will occur, but it nevertheless may sometimes yield. By contrast, freedom of thought is an absolute human right. And freedom of thought protects us from interception, manipulation, and punishment of our thoughts. And here, recognizing that it is such a strong right that has been under-theorized and under-applied largely because we, up until now, the primary way in which freedom of thought was interfered with was through freedom of religion and belief. Going forward, that will not be the only way, is we have to be careful here about how we define thought because we try to read each other's minds all the time. We try to manipulate and persuade each other through words and through actions, even through this conversation, right? We're trying to persuade people of particular perspectives. And so it's important that as we define freedom of thought, that we narrow it to the category of robust thought to say, like, you can't actually directly intercept what I am thinking literally is, you know, kind of broad concepts of thought or what I'm seeing in my mind at any given period of time to intercept it without my permission to manipulate it, which is a particular way of thinking about manipulation and to punish me for it is off limits. But you know, these all overlap with one another, self-determination, mental privacy, freedom of thought, where the umbrella idea is this is what cognitive liberty is, and those are the bundle of rights that make it up. Yeah, I really love that because, you know, at Friends of Europe, we're working on a, a new project we launched yesterday, which is all about a renewed social contract. And so thinking of, of ways to renew the social contract in the future, I think you've served up something here with cognitive liberty. And I think and for whatever reason, I tend to, in my mind, it's sort of flipped over to uh, thinking of it in terms of cognitive self-determination, which you've also described here. Yeah. Uh, and I think that balance of the individual versus, you know, individual rights and, and the broader rights of the broader society are obviously part of that social contract. So I really like that you framed it that way. And in particular, I think here in Europe, you know, we have GDPR, we have the AI Act, we have a number of privacy regulations to protect people, to protect society. Um, you know, there, there are questions from, you know, legal experts and others how effective they are, how enforceable they are. But I think 
you know, while we have you here, I'd love to ask you sort of what should the, you know, if you had a moment to sit down with members of DG Connect at the EU Commission and talk them through sort of what they should do about it, what would you tell them? So first, I think, you know, Europe has been proactive in really important ways that have pushed the rest of the world forward and thinking about privacy rights and thinking about individual rights and how to protect people in the age of emerging technologies. And I'd say while it has done an extraordinary job, it doesn't always get it right, nor does it always purport to get it right. Sometimes it overregulates in ways that can frustrate innovation. Sometimes it leaves gaping holes without intending to do so. And sometimes it's a patchwork rather than backing up and saying, what is the kind of concept of flourishing for humanity in the digital age, which looks different. And so the way in which I would guide them is to step back from a moment from pen and paper of issuing a particular regulation and to say, much like you just described, Chris, of needing a new social contract, I see cognitive liberty as an update to liberty in the digital age, right? We've had, we have a you know, kind of outmoded concept of liberty really right now, because all of it was based on this idea of giving people the capacity for freedom of thought and for self-determination, but none of it contemplated a world in which that is nearly impossible for people to achieve in the way in which technology is designed and distributed and, and the ways in which people are commodified and their data is commodified the ways in which algorithms are intentionally targeted to try to undermine attention and focus and to try to you know push people to act contrary to their own preferences and desires and to shape and reshape their perspectives this isn't like advertisement of the past these are different in kind their precision their uh, ability to pick individual people out based on biometric and brainwave and other information about them is far different than what our ancestors experienced in an age in which liberty was defined that way. So what I would counsel is let's back up and talk about this broader concept of human flourishing in the digital age. Let's recognize that cognitive liberty is an important update to our conceptions of liberty and that giving people, as you described it, self-determination over their cognitive freedoms or self-determination over their cognition and their ability to have flourishing brain health have ways of being able to access self, develop tools of discernment and engage in deep thinking, you know, cultivate empathy in ways that are missing and the ways in which technology is designed and deployed in society. Those first principles, I think, need to animate what we do next, because I don't think the patchwork is going to get us there. I think what the patchwork does is sort of like pick and say, like, there's a privacy violation here, or there's a cybersecurity risk here, or this, you know, it's like going after low hanging fruit, as opposed to the really hard conversation that we need to have now. Our lives look fundamentally different. They're going to look even more radically different a year or two from now as generative AI is pervasive in every aspect of our lives. Um, our thoughts now can even be decoded and deciphered. This is a whole new world. And in a whole new world, we need to update our understanding of what matters and how we're going to protect it. Well, thank you so much. I think the, um, and I do agree that the more holistic view is is definitely much more productive and much more, in the long run, more effective than sort of each of the different constituencies sort of going forward and saying, well, we think XR is important and we think AI is important and <clears throat> neurotechnology and all these other things. Because I think... I've watched this happen with the broader disinformation 
uh, the, you know, the countering disinformation community. And we sort of get people who are into platforms and people who are into laws. And we're very splintered and we're always playing catch up. So I, I, I'm very happy and very uh, appreciative that you ha- uh, you know promoting this sort of more holistic view, a more you know let's get the broader band together on this. I think I, I, I think I'm with you on that. <laughs> I, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get on your boat with that. I think that's that's the way we need to go. And I think we have time for just one more question, and that is, and and thank you for really painting this picture of the crossroads for us. But you know, in this moment today, in you know, 2023, what are the most urgent issues to address? Uh, I, I understand we can do these things simultaneously; we can look more holistically. But what is the most? What are the most urgent aspects of this we need to keep in mind? I think the starting place, like until we figure it out, right? We need to fundamentally change the terms of service for at least these categories of technology. Right now, the terms of service are boilerplate. You have to accept the commodification of your data in order to use or access the services. Um, And I think that is wrong. I think that, um, you know, it is, it's as if people truly have a choice as to whether or not to use these services and technologies, which in many instances they don't. It's in a workplace. It's in a, you know, um, essential to go to school. It's essential to, you know, for their livelihood, for their lives. And so the first and most basic thing is to flip it, to give people self-ownership at the very least over data about their brain and mental experiences. And so brain data at the very least as a low-hanging fruit we need to change the terms of service to say you cannot make it contingent to use your service that the data is commodified. The right has to live with the individual to have access and control over their own data. And I think if we started there, right, then we can build toward the like the broader concept. These things need to be happening in parallel, as you said. But the biggest risk will come from in the short term accessing, using, and misusing that data. If it lives on device, if it lives with the consumer, if it lives within their control, that there isn't some extra copy that's being stored on servers that's being commodified and used and aggregated, it may not allow the innovation to move as quickly for companies. And that may actually bring them to the table, right? Because they're going to want a solution that enables them to figure out ways to aggregate and to study the data in ways that can improve their products. Um, But if they don't start with a right to it, if they start without a right to it, they'll come to the table to find a solution that actually benefits individuals and also will enable them to move forward with their uh, projected needs for their corporate development. Thank you so much. I I wish we had hours to talk about this, uh, but we don't. That's all the time we have for this week's episode. And once again, we'd like to thank our guest, Nita Farhani, for joining us. Uh, You can learn more about her work on this topic by finding a copy of her book, The Battle for Your Brain, and on her website at nitafarahani.com. And we'll put, that, uh, we'll put that website down in the comment section of this episode. And I'll ask you all again to uh, offer your thanks to Nita. And tune in next week to the Frankly Speaking podcast when our guest will be Audrey Tong, Taiwan's Minister of Digital Affairs. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.